So we're going back into the book of Revelation for a couple of weeks, and then uh, in Lent, which happens in the beginning of March, we're going to go. Uh, we're going to do the book of Jonah through the 40 days of Lent and into Easter. Uh, so for the next few weeks, we'll be back in Revelation, and today we are on the sixth trumpet, the second woe to come. So if you would please, if you're able, stand uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> this is Revelation chapter 9. We're going to go from verse 13 through 21. And then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up the worshiping, up worshiping demons and idols and of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a uh, painting by Salvador Dali. I like, really like Salvador Dali. It's a painting. It's called, uh, this is the, the brief title. It's called Gala Contemplating the Mediterranean Sea, which at 20 meters becomes a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> So the title kind of gives it away. But the picture, if you look at it up close, it's a picture, it almost looks like a collage of pixelated images, some small portraits, and in the center, you can see there's a woman looking out a window on a surrealist interpretation of a golden crucifixion where Jesus is hanging uh, up in the air looking down upon everything. And if you, But if you squint your eyes or if you move back 20 paces from the picture, it becomes a, a pixelated-looking portrait of the face of Abraham Lincoln. And Revelation, it kind of works like that, too. Uh, when, you stare at the, at, when you stare at the little details of the pictures, uh, it can really quickly become confusing, especially in this section we're in right now. There are so many images, so many symbolic visions that are happening, and they're switching so quickly and the metaphors are changing so quickly that it can be really easy to get lost really fast. For example, um, there's, uh, you know, we have these interwoven pieces. There's locusts. They're like horses, but then they morph into horses. But they're also like snakes, and they're like scorpions, but they're like lions. Uh, and they torment with their tails, uh, which are scorpions and serpents, and then there's death in their mouth, and there's a real river that we can locate, but then there's this unreal amount of mounted soldiers and these ambiguous angels and, 
and are they good guys, are they bad guys? And if you, if you stare at the little details of the picture, you can get really lost in trying to figure out what this thing means. But if you step back for a minute, it kind of, the big pictures and the big ideas snap into focus. And that's, that's the important thing for us to remember. The big idea of Re- Book of Revelation, uh, it's, not, it's not psychic visions of future warfare. It is a book, a pastoral book, meaning it's meant for the pastoral care of the church, just like every other letter in the New Testament is. And the big idea, when you step back, when you squint, when you step back 20 paces and look at it, the big idea is that it's teaching us about the principles and patterns of spiritual warfare in this age. Uh, And when we do that, you know, one of the most common mistakes that we can make by staring at, those, the, at the minutia, the little details, the little visions, uh, is look at and try to interpret those visions based on the, our, the, our culture and the, and the world as we understand it or know it or as we seem to think it's going. But a better way to understand it, a better way to look at it and interpret it is to look at what these visions, what these symbols would have meant for the time and the culture that this letter was given to. And that's kind of been our game plan as we've moved through Revelation uh, up to this point. So we're going to do that again today. We're gonna, I'm going to try and step back a little bit. We're going to bring the details in that we need to bring in to help the big picture snap into focus. And when we look at this passage, there's three big spiritual principles that come out, three big principles or patterns of spiritual warfare that we can see, and that is this. First one is that evil is an unrelenting and inexhaustible power throughout the entire church age. The second principle is that the primary satanic weapon is false religious belief. And that's inside the church and outside. And the third one is that our condition is such that no human power can save us. So that's what we're going to look at today, looking at those those three big patterns or principles of spiritual warfare that we're able to see. First, we'll look at evil is an unrelenting and an inexhaustible power throughout this age. There's, a, there's something we call the golden age fallacy. When we're looking, when we're, it probably applies to a lot of things, but especially in theology or, or we think about Christian life, a lot of people will look back at a period of time that seemed to be so great and perfect, like they'll look back at the Reformation or they'll look back at uh, in the 1950s, or you know, some period in time where it seemed like everything was so great, but when you actually, when you look at that, when you actually study those times, those times they had all the same, all as many problems as we did. Maybe they weren't exactly the same, but uh, they all struggled with with different, uh, with many of the same things that we struggle with. Another way of thinking about the golden age fallacy is to think is to have in our minds that there's going to be some future distant time when everything is going to be better. Meaning, uh, there was a whole system of theology called a, a, certain, as- a certain school of it anyway, it's called post-millennialism, which really believed that the church was going to grow in influence and power in the world until it would just exhaust evil and dissipate evil and, and pretty much take Satan and evil out of the game until we reached this golden age where everybody was pretty much Christian, everyone was pretty much living by Christian values, and then Jesus would return. They were thinking in their minds that someday the church 
was going to dissipate and destroy Satan's power in the world. Uh, that school of that of that of that thought, anyways, was was pretty much killed off by the rapid succession of World War One and World War Two. There's other schools of thought that believe that the church is going to grow and flourish in the midst of, of awful persecution. But that particular golden age idea that someday the church was going to whittle down Satan until his effects in the world were negligible was pretty much wiped out. We just, me and Pascal just saw 1917, the movie. And if you want to be overwhelmed by the, the, the depths of sin of mankind, what we can be brought into, go and, go and watch that movie. Uh, it has, a, it was well done in bringing to, to, uh, to our attention, to my attention, like how sinful we can get as a world and as a culture. Um, but it's not just, it's not just this global abstract perfect world in the future that we look for. Each of us individually, I do anyways, I'm always looking forward to that period in life when, I'm, when, when, when I go through the Christian life and evil's just going to start to lose its power over me. You know? You just think, you know, right now I'm kind of struggling, but if I keep at this for a decade or so, then the power of evil is just going to diminish and dissipate and I'm not going to have to worry about it as much. But the reality is this passage teaches us that evil is going to be a constant and present reality in our lives. And let's, let's look at the verses 15 and 16. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now, one way to look at this is to say to yourself, to look at the current newspapers, look at the culture that we're in and the world as it is right now, and to look at the newspaper and say, well, 10,000 times 10,000 uh, times two, that equals two million. And this is, this is these we know from you know, the sixth bowl judgment that these are kings of the East. And so the interpretation, one easy answer is, the only people that could possibly field an army of two million people are the Chinese and they're kings of the east, so this must be the Chinese army coming to raid Jerusalem with two million soldiers mounted on horseback with heads like lions, and maybe that means, you know, military hardware. However, however, in the ancient world, in the first century, the word... 10,000 is, is the word myriad from, from Greek. We all know what that number means, really. Myriad means an innumerable amount, right? And so it, so it could mean 10,000, but most of the time it was just the word myriad was just meant for that, an, in, an, an, an innumerable amount of soldiers. And so when in the letter says, he says it's a myriad times a myriad. It's not just a myriad, it's a myriad times a myriad. And it's just not a myriad times a myriad. It's a myriad times a myriad times two. He's trying to say, like, this is like this is so many people, so many soldiers, we can't, we can't even count them. That's how they would say it. And the Euphrates River, to the east of the river, the kings of the east were really, it was the, was the Parthian Empire, the Persians. If you wanted, if you, were a, if you were an Israeli mom and you wanted to scare your kids at night, you would tell them stories about the, the Persian king. We're going to see that. It comes up a lot later 
in the book. And so the Persians were powerful. They were the only army that had defeated the Romans. They were more powerful, more terrifying than the Romans. And so when an ancient person would have read this, they would have thought awful, powerful enemy of an enemy who is innumerable and inexhaustible in their attack. And when you bring that into the idea that we were talking about spiritual principles of warfare, this is a vision or a symbol, a composite picture of evil as an unrelenting and inexhaustible power throughout this church age. It's an evil, it's a power that just keeps on coming. I don't like that either, you know. I would love to be (laughs) post-mill. I would love to believe that we are, the church is going to whittle down evil and diminish its power until the point where we can just plant our flag like Superman and stand there in victory over the devil. But this helps us to be sober-minded. And that's good. It's a pastoral letter. Pastoral meaning that these, this is God's mercy to us teaching us about the world that is so that we can operate in the world that is and not try to operate in the world as we want it to be. And the reality is the golden age starts when Jesus comes back and not a second sooner. And the better we come to grips with that, the better off we're going to be because that means that we can focus on the things we need to focus with. It is true and on a personal scale. Uh, although evil's not going to diminish, God has given us the spirit and we can cultivate the spirit within us in this age so that sin, so that temptation, so the action of the devil, so the attack of evil has less and less power over us, but it's an internal, the spirit from inside of us, creating us into people who are able to weather and operate in this world rather than waiting for evil to take a break because they're not taking a break. They are not taking a break. Another thing to remember is that God is in complete control of all this. Even though evil is inexhaustible, it's going to be unrelenting. This is... God is the one who gives the order, release. God is the one who, in, in symbolic terms, it names the very hour when God is in control, releasing his power into the world. Meaning that God is in control of all of these things. This is not unmanaged or rampant evil that's overcoming good. However, it is going to be present. And so the, the solution to it, how we can pass the, the pastoral takeaway is to not be looking for a golden age, either corporately or or culturally or uh, in any other way until Jesus comes back, but instead to be focusing on the power, the spirit that he gives us so that we can become resilient, so that we can become powerful in the spirit so that we can operate in this age as light. You know, when when you think about it in the terms of the whole age, it can be overwhelming. But each of us only has to really think about just our lifetimes, 70 years. During our lifetime, we can count on evil not relenting, but we can also count on the power of God to work within us to make us resilient uh, and to, to, to be vessels through which he works his work in the world. That's what we can count on. The second thing. The second thing is the primary Second principle, second pattern 
is that the primary satanic weapon is false religious belief, and that's inside and outside the church. Inside and outside the church. And the, I remember in the 80s, during the Reagan administration, the word disinformation was, really became like a, a thing. It became a public, a public thing. Before that, we didn't really think of those terms, although the idea of disinformation goes all the way back. Stalin invented it. He had a department of disinformation. They gave it a French name so that it would sound Western. And the point, the difference between disinformation and misinformation is that misinformation is mistaken. It's information you pass on because you don't know any better. Disinformation is information that's wrong that you purposefully disseminate to create confusion and to obscure the truth. Uh, intelligence agencies do it all the time. Started, you know, Russians did it. You know, U.S. started to get into it in the 80s, if not before, who really knows? But the, the, the problem with it is, the problem with disinformation is now that, you know, once that cap was like uncorked, it went from governments, intelligence agencies, to political campaigns, to political politics as usual, to fringe media outlets, to now mainstream media outlets. And so pretty much everybody's doing it. And the result is what? You don't know who to trust. <coughs> you have no idea who to trust. I mean, you want to trust. You know, we tend to trust like the news sources that, are, that we agree with, you know, that, that are like telling us what we want to hear. That's part of the problem. But the, the, the net result is no one really, there's so much misinformation, disinformation, no one really knows who to trust, what to believe, and nobody trusts each other anymore. Now, as powerful as the CIA is to do that, the SIA is even more powerful. That's the supernatural intelligence agency. That's right. Satan is a supernatural, hyper-intelligent being who knows us better than we know ourselves and is able to perfectly create disinformation that is intently, that is, that is intently meant to obscure the truth and to cause doubt and to make it so that nobody really knows what's true and what's not as far as religious belief is. And the key to it is to base it in truth so it has the ring of truth, but also to add elements into it uh, that you want to believe are true. That's, that's where his understanding of us and how we operate makes that such a powerful weapon. He's able to put into it these elements uh, that we want to believe. We want to believe that religious beliefs just co-signs and allows all, of, all the temptations that we struggle with. And so we're faced with a world, a church, that is awash with all of these errant and, 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 and conflicting and confusing teachings specifically for that purpose, to confuse people and to obscure what is actually true. Listen, let's look at verses 17. Or I'm going to read verse 10. How do I know this is what this is talking about? I'm going to read verse 10, which we talked about last time we read this, which was back in November. And then I'm going to read 17 and 18. And listen for the references to scorpions and to snakes, okay? So this is, this is a, 
from verse 10. They have tails. This is when we're still talking about locusts. Locusts have tails that sting like scorpions, and the power to hurt people is for five months in their tails. And the heads of the horses, now the, now the locusts have, who are like horses have morphed into horses. The horses' heads were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And these three plagues to kill, a third of mankind was killed for the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads. By means of them, they wound. Now, we could look at, the, look at this through the grid of the newspaper and say, scorpions and snakes power in their tails who wound and think of weapons of modern warfare. Or we could go back to how the ancient people would have seen this. And all throughout ancient Near Eastern thought, all from Isaiah through Second Temple literature, through all the, all the writings in Jesus' day and before for a thousand years, scorpions and snakes meant demonic powers, influencing demonic powers. Listen to Jesus says it himself really clearly in Luke chapter 10. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And Harry defines it. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but that your names are written in heaven. As Jesus saying, scorpions, snakes are metaphorical for demonic powers and the influence that they have in the world. And these are operating through false human teachers. The power of the horses is in their mouths. That comes up all over the place in Revelation, that it's something from the mouth. It's spoken word that's coming from the mouth. This is, <clears throat> I'm going to steal a little thunder and go to Revelation 12. This is really clear uh, where the church is pictured um, and then uh, as running, as God taking the church and hiding the church in the wilderness. And then it says the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. I was like, what does that mean? That the snake would open his mouth and a flood would come out. Now I get it. The serpent is opening his mouth and a flood of false religious belief is being poured out into the world in order to wipe the truth of the church off the face of the earth. And it's not just false religions outside of the church. This is a problem inside the church. The very beginning of the Revelation, seven letters to the churches, it talks about the error of the Nicolaitans, the error of Balaam, the error of Jezebel. All of these are false teachers who are teaching Christians that it's perfectly okay to adopt the errant and idolatrous ways of the culture it's compromised Christianity. Uh, that's the issue that's in those seven church letters. And in the New Testament, when we see it, before the ink is even dry on the New Testament, there is popping up all over the place heretical teaching, errant uh, forms of Christianity that are, uh, that are springing up, causing confusion for the purpose of diverting people away from what is absolutely true and causing confusion. Nobody knows what's true and what's not true. From the gate, from the gate. 
And in this portion of the letter, we see that things go, the judgment of God goes from bad to worse. In the first half of the section, her first half of chapter 9, the locusts, and their pictures as locusts because what does locusts do? They eat things up. They're eating up the truth of God's word, making a vacuum. And now they're horses. What do horses do? They charge. They're war horses charging into war. They're charging in, spreading false doctrine uh, actively. In the first half of the chapter, we see that they're forbidden from killing anyone. They're given power to wound for five months, which is God's mercy, allowing the hardship, allowing the consequence of sin for people to to undergo it and experience it so that they might turn to God. But now it's gotten to it's increased and it's gotten worse where the judgment becomes death. And it's progressive. It's progressive. We're going to get into the idea of progression later in the book. But in the seal judgments, the power was given to kill a quarter of mankind. Now it's up to a third of mankind. It's going to get worse and worse. And this sealing judgment is linked with fire, with smoke, and brimstone to link it together with eternal punishment, that the action of God in judgment in the world is, to, is, is judging people who refuse to listen to truth inside the church and outside the church, and their physical death seals them for ultimate sentencing and the execution of that sentence in the final judgment. Not happy thoughts. but dead serious. Man, this should wake us up. Man, if anything is going to get us to not care so much about who drank all the coffee, it's stuff like this. You know, Spurgeon, I think Spurgeon was said, said every time we, we talk about hell and eternal judgment, we should do it with tears. We should, we should be shocked and overwhelmed by it to the point that we have deep sadness and tears. That if anyone goes to hell, it should be, it should be charging past us as we attempt try to tackle them on their way in. One of my, I'm going to quote this wrong. C.T. Studd, a theologian from 100 years ago, has this passage. He made this little this rhyme that said, Something like some people want to, to be uh, in a church with with steeple and a bell. I want to run a, 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 a rescue shop a half a yard from hell. What is it? Okay. That's what I want for our church too. But listen. I used to have this picture. I found this picture of this. It's a picture of a church, a bombed out church from World War II, beautiful cathedral that's just in ruins. And when I went to seminary, I really believed, I was like, all I got to do, all we have to do is just learn the truth. We just have to learn these doctrines and then we'll go and present them to people and they'll, they'll be reasonable and they'll listen to them and people will be pulled out of these errant and destructive heresies and we'll, I'll say, yay, God, and, you know, celebrate. And I had this picture of this church, this bombed-out church from World War II, and I put a caption on it that said, we can rebuild her. We have the technology from the Six Million Dollar Man. Right? <clears throat> I really believed that. I thought, 
We can champion truth and engage in the war of truth in this culture and then and, and, and we can rebuild the beautiful cathedral of the church. And I'm not, I'm not so sure of that anymore. That's kind of the sober-mindedness that this passage brings out. I think, I think maybe the, the picture of the bombed-out church was how we started coming out of Jerusalem. And I think it's kind of been like that the whole time. The true church, the Orthodox church. And that God works powerfully in and through that weakness. That it's not our great buildings that we build or our reputation in the world or the power that we have in culture that means anything. It's more God working through us in power in the midst of that weakness. I have this pastor friend from San Francisco and he said, we were talking once and he's like, I'm so discouraged. I keep praying that God would make me this soaring eagle and I feel like this bird with a broken wing hopping around and I was praying to God and God said, but that's the message. You are the bird with the broken wing. That's the message. My power works through you. That's, and that's what we're called to do, man. There is nothing worse about my job than trying to counsel people and pastor people who have already made their mind up that they are leaving Orthodox Christianity. <coughs> it's the kind of stuff that wakes us up at 3 in the morning crying. You wake up crying. Because you're so afraid for them, the people that you love. And so what are we going to, what do we do? I mean, how do you even begin to minister and speak truth into a world that is what it is? How do we operate in the world as it is? If we can't master truth and debate people into, into believing truth, if we can't, how do you even begin, man? Well, I think one, one thing I've had to learn and come to grips with is that what God calls us to do is stand. And that may mean we stand as a witness for salvation and he uses us to bring people in. It may mean we stand as a witness to judgment and we get decimated. And what I've had to come to grips with is that that's not our call as to which one happens. We're just called to stand, to trust God that he knows what he is doing. The ebbs and tides and flows of the church as the kingdom expands and contracts and expands and contracts over history here in our own place and time everywhere is all of God's perfect movement accomplishing his divine end. And wherever we find ourselves in that grand story, in that grand narrative is where he has called us to stand and to stand in truth and present truth as a beautiful alternative to the world around us, but we can't make anything happen. We really can't. And that's, a, I mean, that's the hard thing to come to grips with. And that brings us to the last part, which is number three, third spiritual principle is that our condition is such that no human power can save us. Our condition is such that no human power can save us. One of the most disturbing things I've ever watched was a video about uh, 
it was about a Palestinian uh, refugee camps and, and settlements, and, in, uh, and it was all about their children and how they were training their children to become martyrs, basically. And they were, they were had, their children were writing poetry and papers, uh, just just were just so full of hatred for Israel, and they were doing it wearing their uniform was suicide mock suicide vests, and they are marching in a parade. Five year old kids marching in a parade uh, and, and expressing their desire on the microphone to grow up to be a martyr to go into Jerusalem and to blow themselves up as martyrs and their parents were right behind them just beaming so proud of their kids just so proud of them and i thought to myself as i was watching that i was like i was like how would you ever 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 restore one of those kids to sanity their own like animosity and sinful hearts are bad enough, but then they're just being fanned to a flame of hatred by the entire culture around them. And I was thinking, they grew up in that. It's all they know. How much psychological damage is being done? How is that warping them? And how would they ever, ever, ever be able to come out of that? I mean, think about how you were twisted as a kid by just basic Americans twisting. Now, you know, imagine that you were being trained to think that the highest good in life was for you to, to murder as many people as you could in, in, a, in a suicide attack. I think that's a microcosm of our whole culture. And that kind of helps us to understand the depths of depravity, the depths of the problem, our condition. It's not just that we all have animosity towards God in our own hearts. The Bible calls it enmity, which means eneminess. <laughs> our natural state is to, is to be kind of at war with God, to, be, to have animosity towards him, to mistrust him, to not want him to be who he is, and to, to duck out of that. But, but it's not just that in our hearts. The entire culture is just fanning that into flames. Uh, it makes unbelief, unbelief, it makes unbelief intractable. We used to use that word when I was breeding snakes. I used to breed green tree pythons, and if there was a python that you just could not handle, I had a, I had a male green tree python, I called him Bruce Lee because he just would not do anything other than fight. Whenever you tried to hold him, he just, bam, he would just strike, 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 strike. Intractable. The Catholics call it impenetrable ignorance. That our, the condition of the world, the condition of our hearts is such that our ignorance is impenetrable. And for evidence of that, look at what's happening in this book. God has like, it's this picture of God in mercy bringing a limited judgment on the world, allowing people to suffer the consequence of their skin, of their sins, to wake them up to the reality of human sin and our need for God. And what is the result of that? The result is the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. 
nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Nil. No effect. Now let me remind you, we went through the Gospel of John, same author. In the Gospel of John, what's presented? Jesus working all of these divine miracles in the presence of everyone. And to what effect did those miracles have on bringing people into salvation? At the end of the day, there was 120 people in the upper room. That's it. Everybody who saw those miracles rejected him and crucified him. What could possibly ever save us? What could possibly ever cut through that? The smoke, the deception, the layer upon layer of disinformation, false religious belief. Most of it, hitting our hearts in such a way that we just pine for it. Divine judgment can't cut it. Divine witnessing a miracle can't cut through it. What could ever, ever save us? What could ever save you out of that? Let me read the gospel reading again. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You weren't sick. You weren't feeling a little nauseous. You weren't having a little bit of a struggle. You were dead. Dead. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's not working the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. Not because of what you did. This is just just like came out of this text. I was reading it this week. There's nothing, nothing human could break that impenetrable smoke screen that this world is in. The only thing is inner divine, is the death of God and the Holy Spirit applying that, the effects and the, and the privileges of that death upon us, giving us a new heart so that we wake up out of that fog and can see truth. That's the only thing, the only thing that can save us. I'm not trying to impress upon you any one particular doctrine of election or anything like that, but what I want, what I want us to see 
I want you to have a sense of like what it was that God saved you out of. What it took for him to do that. What you have been given in Jesus. What we have been given in Jesus. So that no matter what happens in this age, no matter what happens as evil is unrelenting, no matter what happens as the smoke swirls around, you can wake up in the morning and be overwhelmed with gratitude at the baseline reality of your life. That God has rescued you out of impenetrable darkness and given you life. And we will survive this age. And into an age to come that's more astonishingly beautiful than we can even imagine. Amen. God, you have saved us. Oh God, we pray you would forgive us for all of our silly ideas about how we may or may not have participated in our salvation. We pray that you would forgive us for all the ways that we compromise with the culture and, and the ways that it destroys us, the way it dims our light, the way it causes hardship, the way it causes confusion. And we pray that we would see, Lord, we would see um, the reality of the world that is. It is a world under attack by powerful enemy forces. And that we had no hope of coming out of on our own power. But that you have saved us and given us life given us a future inheritance and a hope and that nothing can take that away from us. Lord, you promised to keep us safe through this age and we pray that that would make us so grateful that no matter what happens on the ground, no matter what tragedy or temptation befalls us, no matter what sin we get caught into, we can say, I belong to the living God. He has given me his spirit and nothing can ever, ever hurt me again. And I pray that that gratitude would flow out of us like rivers of truth and light, and that you would use us, Lord, that you would use us as your chosen vessels to bring life and salvation to our friends and our family, to everyone we know that doesn't know you, and to all of San Diego and the world, wherever you would send us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.